Okay, so welcome to part two of my breakdown in a significant amount of detail of the Intelligence Authorization Act for the fiscal year 2023. I finished off the first part. You may want to check that out if you've not already heard it because this probably won't make much sense because it'll be the second part of the, the breakdown of the document, etc. I finished off the first half just about to take a sip of my cup of tea and this one will begin with the sip and then it will carry on from there and it's worth checking out if you heard the first one because right at the end there's going to be quite a detailed breakdown of why i think this is important and some of the really significant points mentioned and um, so here we go let's get back into that then sorry about that i just had to take a sip of my tea it is getting extremely warm in this room I am melting somewhat. I bet American listeners are probably thinking, why on earth are you drinking a cup of tea then if it's uh, so warm in there? It's just how it goes down, unfortunately. In the United Kingdom, we like a cup of tea in any condition. So I'm sat here in a roasting room drinking a nice hot, hot cup of tea, as baffling as that may be to some people. has to be done. Cheers. Anyway... So, moving on from that, subsequent briefings. Each briefing provided subsequent to the first briefing described in paragraph 2 shall include, at a minimum, all events relating to unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena that occurred during the previous 180 days and events relating to unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena that were not included in an earlier briefing. So again, just basically specifying there that these um, 180 day uh, briefings that that are provided have to include all of the cases that have occurred in those previous 180 days that the report actually covers and um, or the briefing covers should I say not report and not only that but anything that wasn't included in an earlier briefing has to also be included as well and then we move on four instances in which data was not shared for each briefing period, the director of the office shall jointly provide to the chairman or chair and the ranking member or vice chairman of the congressional committees specified in subparagraphs A and D of subsection 1 an enumeration of any instances in which data relating to unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena was not provided to the office because of classification restrictions on that data or for any other reason. So again, basically saying there, that anything for, for whatever reason had had to be withheld from one of these reports and um, we need to know exactly um what it was and all of that has to be accounted for in in these reports as well again you would imagine that anything like that is going to end up in the classified section of the report but still interesting to to know that that's going to be included there now we move on quarterly briefings so we've heard so far about annual briefings we've heard so far about um the uh the twice a year briefings the semi-annual and now we're hearing about quarterly briefings so we're talking about uh, even more regular and it says one in general not later than 180 days after the enactment of the intelligence authorization act for fiscal year 23 and not less frequently than once every 90 days thereafter the director of the office that's the head honcho of the, the UFO office that we're talking about, shall provide the Congressional Defence Committees, the Congressional Intelligence Committees and Congressional Leadership Briefings on Unidentified Aerospace Undersea Phenomena Events. 
And it goes on, two elements. The briefings provided under paragraph one shall include the following. So these 90-day briefings that are going to be provided by the head honcho of this office to these congressional committees, this is what it has to include. A, a continuously updated compendium of unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena events. So again, a, a basically a database of all of the sightings that... Um, that have been uh, brought through this new UFO office and uh, a continuously updated compendium of, of these cases. B, details about each sighting that has occurred within the, the past 90 days and the status of each sighting's resolution. So basically, what happened in each case and did you manage to resolve it and figure out what it was or not? C, updates on the office's collection, activities and posture analysis and research. So put in a nutshell the progress of how they're getting on with actually collecting reports you know the overall kind of posture of the office what it's up to how how the analysis is going and the research and then we go along to uh, authorization of appropriations there is authorized to be appropriated such sums as may be necessary to carry out the work of the office including with respect to one general intelligence gathering and intelligence analysis two strategic defense space defense defense of controlled airspace defense of ground air or naval assets and related purposes so basically we're just saying there it's a small paragraph that but it's saying there is authorized to be appropriated such sums as may be necessary to carry out the work of the office so basically just saying whatever money you need to do this work that's going to be provided as i mentioned earlier the actual sums that go allocated to various different tasks within the intelligence authorization act are generally not disclosed so that's not a surprise to find out that we don't know exactly how much is going to be allocated it's more just a case of look whatever you need to spend get it done this is important that's great that's what we like to see the next section task force termination not longer uh, sorry not later than the date on which the secretary establishes the office under subsection a the secretary shall terminate the unidentified aerial phenomena task force so not particularly unexpected there because the, um, this new office is going to be um you know much more far-reaching than the uap task force the uid the uap task force was only ever meant to be a temporary measure until something better came along and um so yeah not entirely unexpected to see that there uh, def definitions in this section the term appropriate congressional committees means the following a the committees on armed services of the senate and house of representatives b the committees on appropriations of the senate and house of representatives c the committee on foreign relations of the senate and the committee on foreign affairs of the house of representatives d the select committee on intelligence of the senate and the permanent select committee on, on intelligence of the house of representatives and then it says two the term congressional defense committees has the meaning given such term in section 101a of title 10 united states code and three the term congressional intelligence committees has the meaning given such term in section three of the national security act of 1947 and so on and basically um, the rest of this section is just talking about the specific terminology that has been used in a lot of the um the the bits that we've already discussed there so i'm not going to go into that because it's just a lot of terminology explanation really um but there's a couple of bits that uh, i think would be worth 
um, going into just to, to clear up a little bit. So the term line organization, now that was something that was mentioned quite a few times in there. And the term line organization means with respect to a department or agency of the federal government, an organization that ex executes programs and activities to directly advance the core functions and missions of the department or agency to which the organization is subordinate, but with respect to the Department of Defense does not include a component of the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So basically, a line organization just means a group or a team which is operating um, to fulfill the goals of the office that we've been talking about all this time. So a line organization basically just means that. It also goes into a little bit of um, definitions about what these objects actually are as well, which I thought might be quite interesting to read through. So the term transmedium objects or devices means objects or devices that are A, observed to transition between space and the atmosphere or between the atmosphere and bodies of water and B, not immediately identifiable. So uh, I heard somebody mention about this the other day. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Ross Coltart uh, who said, technically, we already have transmedium vehicles because the space shuttle, for example, was able to travel between space and the Earth's atmosphere. So that's an interesting point. There are actually known transmedium vehicles. But what this is talking about is, you know, just to give a, a clear definition of what's being referred to by transmedium objects or devices, and that is just those which transition between space and the atmosphere, like the shuttle would have done, basically, or between the atmosphere and bodies of water, and there's not really anything that we've ever managed to create that does that. I mean, think about it. You would Imagine you have the, the space shuttle, which can go between space and the Earth's atmosphere, and then it also just flies down to the ocean and then starts to continue its journey underneath the sea. That would be very remarkable, wouldn't it? And we've never come close to making anything like that, especially not to come back out of the sea and continue its flight, etc. Um, so, yeah, it's just that, that little bit there um, is just an interesting definition of specifically what they mean by these transmedium objects. And it also says that they need to be not immediately identifiable. Um that's interesting because it's very similar language to what Obama has used when he's talked about these things. Uh, what did he say? No, I think Obama said something like a, um, a, a, they are not easily explainable patterns of movement, not immediately identifiable. I mean, I'm sure he said something similar to that as well um, in the past, but it just struck me a slight, slight similarity in the language there. But anyway, probably nothing. Eight, uh, the term unidentified aerospace under sea phenomena, which is kind of the phrase that was used most of the time to refer to these anomalous objects, basically throughout everything that I've just been reading. What does that mean then, according to the definition given here? So it means airborne objects that are not immediately identifiable, transmedium objects or devices, and submerged objects or devices that are not immediately identifiable and that display behavior or performance characteristics suggesting that the objects or devices may be related to the objects or devices described in subparagraph A or B and does not include temporary non-attributed objects or those that are positively identified as man-made. So essentially, I think what it's getting at there is objects that can exist as, as transmedium objects 
things that are submerged under the ocean that aren't easily identified that display anomalous characteristics essentially to paraphrase and that are not easily identified as being man-made or that are not positively identified as being man-made so a fairly self-explanatory explanation but i just thought it'd be worth quickly delving into that right and moving on to the next section then um this is kind of coming to a close of the section that contains in, interesting information. Um, there's a bit about the reporting procedures, etc., and then it goes into uh, a very large bit about uh, some more definitions and things, and then just moves on to another topic altogether. So we're going to go through this little bit, and then I think that wraps up the actual um, deep dive into the actual document itself for now. So the next section uh, basically says... Uh, section 704 unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena reporting procedures a authorization for reporting notwithstanding the terms of any non-disclosure written or oral agreement order or other instrumentality or means that could be interpreted as a legal constraint on reporting by a witness of a unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena Reporting in accordance with the system established under subsection B is hereby authorised and shall be deemed to comply with any regulation or order issued under the authority of Executive Order 13526. And then it goes into a little bit about what that is, um, which is in brackets, and it says 50 USC 3161 note relating to classified national security information or Chapter 18 of the Atomic Energy Act of 1954, uh, 42 USC 2271, etc. Close brackets. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of that because the wording of it is quite tricky. Um, but it's basically talking about the authorization for reporting so notwithstanding the terms of any NDA or other instrument instrumentality or means that could be interpreted as a legal constraint on reporting by a witness of an unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena, reporting in accordance with the system established under subsection B is hereby authorised and shall be deemed to comply with any regulation or order issued. I think that saying... This is a tricky one. I mean, you'll have to, you guys will have to let me know if you've if you've uh, got a different conclusion here. Uh, there must be people listening who are a lot more in the know of the the specific language than, than I am. So I'd be interested to hear. But it seems to me that it's saying, notwithstanding the terms of any NDA, you know, reporting in in accordance with the, this new system and office is authorized. I can't figure out if that means. Even if you've got an NDA, your communication and reporting to this office is authorised. Or if it's saying, bearing in mind NDAs, reporting is authorised. In other words, if you've got an NDA, you don't have to tell us everything. It's a tricky one. I'm going to have to kind of reread that and um, think about it a bit. Try and get my head around exactly what, what's being meant by that particular paragraph there. But interesting to, to, to bear in mind anyway. If anybody wants to check that out and uh, get back to me about what you think about it, it is uh, page 107 and it is um, uh, section 704A. So it'd be interesting to hear other people's thoughts on that one as well. And then it goes into a little bit of detail. System for reporting. Number one, establishment. The head of the office on behalf of the Secretary of Defence and Director of National Intelligence shall establish a secure system for receiving reports of 
A, any event relating to unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena, and B, any government or government contractor activity or program related to unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena. So again, just saying that this, that the head honcho of this office um, needs to carry out the duties of establishing a secure system for receiving these reports stands to reason. And that is uh, any, any event relating to these uh, anomalous objects and any government or government contractor activity or program related to these anomalous objects as well. So very interesting there that um, a secure system is going to be established. I would say that's fairly self-explanatory. You would imagine that you'd have to have a very secure system in place for receiving these reports because of the sensitive nature uh, of what the reports might contain. But also any government or government contractor activity or program related to these suggests that you could be getting reports coming in from some of these programs, perhaps even some of these um, programs that are, are deeply hidden and, uh, uh, you know, denied within uh, wherever it is that they're within. So that's uh, interesting to, to think about there. And it goes on, uh, protection of systems, programs and activity. The system established pursuant to paragraph one shall serve as a mechanism to prevent unauthorized public reporting or compromise of properly classified military intelligence systems, programs and related activity, including all categories and levels of special access and com compartmented uh, access programs, current historical and future. So... Here we're talking about the the system that is going to be established for this reporting will basically be uh, so secure and it will be done in a way to basically prevent the public from reporting or compromising these um, classified military and intelligence systems programs and related activities, including... Um, you know, actually special access programs and com compartmented special access programs, current, historical, and future. Really interesting word in there. I mean, we're literally saying that, you know, these, uh, what I was suggesting that they might be hinting at in that previous point there, I said that the programs may be able to report to this new office. It's literally saying that there has to be protection in place from any of these uh, special access programs and compartments uh, compartmented special access programs to be able to directly report to the office without revealing the existence of them to the public that is interesting but again you do have to bear in mind that let's say there is you know this alleged crash retrieval and reverse engineering program uh, does indeed exist now they can report some of their information to this office and, and actually are required to report some of their information to this office doesn't mean you're going to hear anything about that in the public aspects of these reports and briefings because that's definitely going to end up in the classified section uh, or there may even be provisions established to not include any of those you know special access programs compartmented special access programs within the briefings and the reports because it does say that that system has to be secure enough to basically prevent unauthorized public reporting or compromise of these um classified military and intelligence systems programs and related activity so could that actually include um the prov uh, the provision of information from those secret programs on the basis that they don't get included in reports just to be extra secure about the fact that they're not going to be compromised or revealed to the public interesting very interesting indeed 
And then it goes on to say, uh, administration, the system established pursuant to paragraph one shall be administered by designated and widely known, easily accessible and appropriate, uh, appropriately cleared Department of Defence and intelligence community employees or contractors assigned to the unidentified aerial phenomena task force or the office. So this reporting system that is now uh, being proposed to be established um, shall be uh, administered by designated and widely known um, DOD and intelligence community employees or contracted uh, contractors who are assigned to the UAP task force or the office. Fairly self-explanatory really there. Um, and it goes on to talk about sharing of information. The system established under paragraph one shall provide for the immediate sharing with office personnel and supporting analysts and scientists of information previously prohibited from reporting under any non-disclosure written or oral agreement order or other instrumentality or means except in cases where the cleared government personnel administering such system conclude that the preponderance of information available regarding the reporting indicates that the observed object and associated events and activities likely relate to a special access program or compartmented access program that as of the date of the reporting has been explicitly and clearly reported to the Congressional Defence Committees and Congressional Intelligence Committees and is documented as meeting those criteria. That is a very long and very weirdly worded paragraph. So the system itself that is being established shall provide for the immediate sharing with office personnel and analysts and scientists, etc., um, uh, of information previously prohibited from reporting under any NDAs or oral agreements or written agreements um, or, or any other means. you know. So we're basically saying that this information needs to be shared with the office personnel, supporting analysts and scientists in order for them to be able to do the job properly. So any of this information that was previously prohibited from being reported to them because of NDAs or whatever it might be, that information is going to be shared with all of the various relevant personnel who need to get that information and that data. However, though, except in cases where the cleared government personnel administrating that system figure out that the preponderance of the information available on that particular case means that the associated events and activities likely relate to a special access program or compartmented special access program that as of the date of reporting has been explicitly and clearly reported to the congressional defense committees and congressional intelligence committees and is documented as meeting those criteria so that seems to me to be saying any information that comes in on these cases needs to be shared with everybody within the office who has a need to know. For example, the analysts and scientists that are doing the work of actually breaking this stuff down, trying to understand it, except in cases where there's a strong indication that that case is associated with some kind of a secret program and that has already been outlined to the various um, congressional defence committees, it, it, obviously in a classified uh, format. So that's, that is really interesting. And, and the other thing to bear in mind with that is um, we're talking about the possibility that some of these anomalous objects that are being witnessed could be uh, a black program, secret tech that's being worked on um, by uh, the US. And I think, if I remember rightly, Bray said at the congressional hearing that 
the vast majority of the cases um, were not identifiable as a black project um, uh, piece of equipment or device. And there was one case, I believe he said, that actually they, they determined was some kind of secret development program. Um, and that was what respons was responsible for um, the object that was witnessed. But the vast majority are not. So very interesting there to to imagine what that program could have been and, and what the uh, the secret development w could have possibly been there. And that, that it was the explanation for one of the cases. But the main thing is that the majority of these cases cannot be explained in that way. So... Moving on from that then, the initial report and publication, not later than 180 days after the date of the enactment of this Act, the Head of the Office on behalf of the Secretary and the Director shall uh, A, submit to the Congressional Intelligence Committees, Congressional Defence Committees and Congressional Leadership a report detailing the system established under Paragraph 1. So they're talking about half a year after this thing comes into play, they're going to have to report uh, on how that system is shaping up to be able to take these um, the data and the, the various reports of cases and B, make available to the public on a website of the Department of Defence information about such system, including clear public guidance for accessing and using such system and providing feedback about the expected timeline to process a report. Now, that's really interesting. So they're talking about actually having a website on the Department of Defence information um, uh, which, which basically collates all of these um, the, the the actual reports themselves and, and makes this uh, system quite open and transparent with the public. So that's something to look forward to. It also goes on to talk about uh, various other bits and bobs that are going to be reported and um, a lot of that is very similar to what I mentioned earlier on. Essentially, I'll just skip through that because uh, it is getting a little bit too hot to handle in here at the moment, I must admit getting a bit warm and uh, it talks about annual reports and basically just some relatively minor details about the the specifics about what those reports and um, the language used in them and some definitions and things like that probably not worth reading through that little bit there and then we get to uh, the next section records of non-disclosure agreements so one identification of non-disclosure agreements the secretary of defense the director of national intelligence the secretary of homeland security the heads of such other departments and agencies of the federal government that have supported investigations of the types of events covered by subparagraph a of subsection b1 and activities and programs described in subparagraph b of such subsection and contractors of the federal government supporting such activities and programs shall conduct comprehensive searches of all records relating to non-disclosure orders or agreements or other obligations relating to the types of events described in subsection a and provide copies of all relevant documents to the office to submittal to congress the head of the office shall a make the records compiled under paragraph one accessible to the congressional intelligence committees the, the congressional defense committees and congressional leadership and b not later than september the 30th 2023 and at least once each fiscal year thereafter through fiscal year 2026 provide to such committees and congressional leadership briefings and reports on such records so all of that there is specifically talking about non-disclosure agreements and the fact that these particular non-disclosure agreements have to actually 
be identified and all records related to these non-disclosure orders or agreements or other obligations relating to essentially withholding information for legal reasons and, and obligations um all of that has to actually be covered and co copies of the relevant documents relating to those has to actually be provided to the office and then the office itself is going to make those re records actually uh, accessible to the congressional intelligence committees and um not only that uh, a yearly report uh, at least once a year it says actually all the way through to 2026 has to be provided to these committees and congressional leadership um so to to make them aware of that so i think another quite important point there um because we're talking about um you know the hiding behind ndas or, or not so much the hiding behind perhaps but just the um the inability to be able to share information because of ndas all that now has to be properly verified and kept track of and reports have to be generated on exactly what ndas are doing what and uh, what is is being um held back uh, for that for that reason and it also goes into um protection from liability and private rights of action one protection from liability it shall not be a violation of any law and no cause of action shall lie or be maintained in any court or other tribunal against any person for reporting any information through and in compliance with the system established pursuant to subsection b1 and two prohibition on reprisals an employee of a federal agency and employee of a contractor for the federal government who has authority to take direct others to take recommend or approve any personnel action shall not with respect to such authority take or fail to take or threaten to take or fail to take a personnel action including the revocation of suspension of security clearances with respect to any individual as a reprisal for any reporting as described in paragraph one so essentially again very significant and all of this does seem to to, to tie into basically protection for people who are wanting to come forward to this office with information and this particular couple of paragraphs here very significant and that it shall not be a violation of any law and no cause of action shall be maintained in any court against any person for reporting any information uh, in compliance with the system established for reporting so it can't be a law it can't be against the law for anybody to cooperate with providing information to that system according to this paragraph and also an employee or um, contractor of the federal government blah 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 um, shall not take or threaten to take any uh, personnel action including the revocation or suspension of security clearances um, as a reprisal for any reporting to that system so not only can somebody not be prosecuted um for the cooperation with this ufo office in providing information through that secure system to be established but somebody can have their security clearance removed for that reason not only that they can't even be threatened to have their um their security clearance removed either so very significant supporting of the people who may have to give information to this office there then we move on to three private rights of action in a case in which an employee described in paragraph two which we just went through um takes a personal action against an individual in violation of such paragraph the individual may bring a private civil action for all appropriate remedies including injunctive relief and compensatory and punitive damage against the government or other employee who took the personal action 
in a federal district court of competent jurisdiction. So essentially saying, not only is somebody not allowed legally to threaten to take away a security clearance um, for um, the cooperation with this uh, UFO office and reporting to it through that secure system, but anybody who does that can actually themselves be prosecuted. So again, very, very significant language here talking about um, the, the, the protection for people who cooperate with this new reporting system. And then it says, a review by Inspectors General, not later than one year after the date of the enactment of this act, the Inspector General of the Department of Defence and the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community shall each, one, conduct an assessment of the compliance with the requirements of this system and operation and efficacy, efficacy tough word to say that one but i got there uh, of the system established under subsection b and two submit to the congressional intelligence committees the congressional defense committees and congressional leadership a report on their respective findings with respect to the assessments they conducted under paragraph one so again talking about there that the inspector general basically has to keep keep on top of um, how this is all playing out. So the inspector general of the Department of Defense and the IG of the intelligence community uh, have to periodically conduct an assessment of whether or not people are complying with this the requirements of this system uh, and this office to actually send the information through to them and also submit to the congressional intelligence committees and uh, congressional defense committees uh, an actual report on their findings with with regards to that so again some pretty ironclad um defense there for people who are cooperating and, and real strong wording to make sure not only do people cooperate but if there's any reprisals against those people for cooperating then there can be pretty serious consequences so very interesting. And then after that, it goes into uh, quite a few more um, bits and bobs of definitions, which we'll skip through. And um, it actually talks about various other, um, in section 705, uh, it talks about the definitions of the actual uh, unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena. So we'll just quickly go through that. And that's basically then the end of that particular um section of the report and it goes into other topics after that so a couple of important bits to pick out from the last bit here then before we move on um, definition of unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena in this section the term unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena has the meaning given to such term in 1683 of the national defense authorization act for fiscal year 2022 uh, as amended by section 703 um, so I was just saying there that basically the unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena term uh, has the same meaning given to that term uh, in section 1683 of the NDAA for the year 2022. So just saying that the, the two definitions will be the same there. Um, goes on to say compilation required not later than one year after the date of the enactment of this act. The controller or the comptroller general of the United States shall... One, commence a review of the records and documents of the intelligence community, oral history interviews, open source analytic analysis, interviews of current and former government officials, classified and unclassified national archives, including those records, any third party obtained pursuant to Section 552 of Title V United States Code, commonly known as the Freedom of Information Act or FOIA, and such other relevant historical sources as the... Comp Comptroller General considers appropriate. 
So that's quite interesting there because we're talking about a, a review of the records and documents from the intelligence community, interviews, um, various other sort of formats that the information could have come through, uh, including interviews of current and former government officials. Made me wonder there, are they talking about Chris Mellon, Lou Elizondo, taking into account the things that they have actually said in interviews? Could that be what they mean by that there? Um, classified and unclassified national archives, including those uh, basically FOIA request archives. Are they talking about John Greenwald and his, his, uh, his pretty extensive archive of uh, FOIA results that he's got back from that um, Section 552 of Title V United States Code, commonly known as the Freedom of Information Act or FOIA, uh, and, and such other relevant historical sources as considered appropriate? So they're talking about, again, casting a very, very wide net in that particular uh, couple of paragraphs there um, to actually compile important information um, from from basically anywhere, not just from you know the CIA and the military reporting directly to this office, but also putting something together there which covers you know information that's out in the, in the public sphere. At least that's how I interpret that. Um, pretty interesting. And it goes on to say, um, for the period beginning on January the 1st, 1947, and ending on the date on which the Comptroller General completes activities under this subsection, compile and itemise a complete historical record of the intelligence community's involvement with unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena, including successful or unsuccessful efforts to identify and track unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena, and any intelligence community efforts to obfuscate, manipulate public opinion, hide, or otherwise provide unclassified or classified misinformation about unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena or related activities based on the review conducted under paragraph one. So the Comptroller General, who is this guy? What does he do? I hadn't really heard about this individual or this role even, especially being from the UK. It's not something I was familiar with. Initially thought it might be a typo, to be quite honest with you. They're quite funny. But no, they've not accidentally spelt controller wrong. It is actually the, the official title. Um, Comptroller General, the US Comptroller General. And um, uh, this basically individual comes from the US Government Accountability Office and the, otherwise known as the GAO. And this office provides Congress um, the heads of executive aid agencies with timely fact-based non-partisan information that can be used to basically improve government and save taxpayers a lot of money um, by getting uh, accurate uh, information uh, in a non-partisan way outside of the kind of um, you know political tug of war that can sometimes go on. Um, the the heads of the executive agencies and, and Congress directly get this these reports and information in this way. And uh, the actual uh, current Comptroller, of, Comptroller General of the United States is a, a gentleman by the name of Gene Dodaro. And uh, he has actually been in that position from um, March the 13th, 2008, up until present day. 
And apparently uh, the Comptroller General in the United States actually has a fixed term of 15 years and then after that they're not eligible for reappointment. So uh, if my maths is correct, this gentleman is actually coming very close to the end of his term and won't be eligible for reappointment after that. Um, so I'm not really sure of the specific dates. I mean, March 2008 and he would have been in that role for... Let me see. This is where my mental arithmetic lets me down. I bet a lot of the people listening have already have already done the maths, but just bear with me while the cogs turn over. Um, so 2008 until 2018, uh, he would have been 10 years in the job. Uh, you add five to that. So it's right on the borderline, actually, as to whether or not he'll still be the Comptroller General at the time that this report gets uh, generated. And... Uh, the idea of it is that uh, his the first report from the Comptroller General uh, General will be generated uh, not later than a year after the date of the enactment of this Act. So I'm not exactly sure whether it will still be Gene Dodaro at that point or whether it will be his successor. But anyway, the point is um, the GAO is essentially uh, described on the, the, the Comptroller General's uh, website has been a kind of a congressional watchdog uh, to essentially kind of be a non-partisan provider of information to the top level. And um, the way that they're selected is is done in a very careful way to ensure, you know, impartiality, basically, and, and somebody who's outside of that political tug of war. Um, the, uh, there's a commission which basically recommends three individuals to the president, and the president can actually uh, request the commission recommend additional individuals as well if they want more choice. And then the president selects one individual out of those put forward to be the new Comptroller General. And um, the president's nomination then is confirmed by the Senate and they get their non-renewable 15-year term after that. So what's important about this is the fact that this individual, the Comptroller General, will be actually um, putting a report together uh, a year after this act actually, uh, you know, goes live, comes comes into place, to actually have a, a, an overall review of... Um, what's out there in terms of what the intelligence community interviews, open source, uh, analytic analysis, uh, interviews of those former and current government officials. You've got to think that that's going to be a lot of the insiders that have initially been in the government and have now gone public. Um, it's got to include a lot of that and also fire databases, um, which can be unclassified national archives uh, that might just be referring to the um the national archives uh, official database of fire results or perhaps they're actually talking about um well i actually just say in, including those records any third party obtained pursuant to the foia so you would imagine that they really are casting a wide net there to create a, a, a very thorough report of everything that's out there on this topic. And also, very importantly, um, the report needs to cover this period beginning on January the 1st, 1947. And um, that is a very significant date, which I'll come back to a little bit later, I think. But um, And it ends on the date that the Comptroller General completes activities, um, you know, included in the, the requirements for that report. But 
Very interestingly there, it also goes in to talk about um, the Comptroller General will compile and itemise a complete historical record of the intelligence community's involvement with unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena, including successful or unsuccessful attempts to identify and track these anomalous objects. And really interesting, any intelligence community efforts to obfuscate, manipulate public opinion, hide or otherwise provide unclassified or classified misinformation about these objects so absolutely fascinating but i suppose if you think about it it is logical if you're looking into something you're going to need to know have our basically spy agencies been putting out misinformation because we need to know you know what's what what out of all the stuff that's out there first of all what's out there that, that's the initial thing you know that includes FOIA request databases that includes what our former insiders have, have gone out and said to the public in interviews that includes um what documents are available everything that's out there and then we need to also then figure out how much of that stuff that is out there is misinformation you know have the cia deliberately misled the public on this in the past you know and what to what extent exactly how much of it is fake and how much of it is because let's be honest if you're trying to get to the bottom of a mystery you're going to have to go way back to the beginning of it and you're going to have to try and figure out if any of it is misinformation or not so i think very very interesting um you know paragraph there with some pretty important details in it and then we go on to the specifics of uh, the report. One, in general, not later than 180 days after the date on which this Comptroller General uh, completes this compilation and itemization required by subsection B2, the Comptroller General shall submit to Congress a report summarizing the historical record described in such subsection. So basically, um, not, after, not later than 180 days uh, after that report is completed, it needs to be submitted to Congress and with all of those prior requirements included. Number two, resources. The report submitted under paragraph one shall include citations to the resources relied upon and instructions as to how the resources can be accessed. So basically just saying you need to provide links to where you found the info. A fairly obvious one, that one. Three, form. The report submitted under paragraph one shall be submitted in an unclassified form wow but may include a classified annex as necessary i mean that is properly interesting can you imagine if this report comes out in its unclassified form and it confirms that the cia have indeed misled the public significantly over the decades that is super fascinating you know crazy I'd be really interested to read that. I mean, again, will it be a bit of a nothing burger with all the interesting stuff in the classified part? Remains to be seen. But also, interesting that it goes back all the way to 1947. So could it be that the reason, you know, the the some of the activities taken uh, by the CIA in the 50s, 60s and 70s, for example, some of that may actually be allowed to be put into the classified, uh, sorry, the unclassified version. So because it's so long ago, perhaps we will actually get to learn about some of those historical obfuscation and misdirection attempts by these secretive agencies. We'll just have to see. 
Um, so bear in mind, I am melting by this point, ladies and gentlemen. It is 11.50 a.m. and the heat is starting to get a bit unbearable. So uh, I'm quite glad, actually, that we're coming to the end of this reading because it's getting a bit sauna-like in this room. Just have another sip of my tea. That'll cool me down. There we go. So... Um, this report submitted under paragraph one um, shall be submitted in unclassified form. Very, very interesting, but may include a classified annex as necessary. And then it goes on to talk about the cooperation of the intelligence community. The heads of elements of the intelligence community whose participation the Comptroller General deems necessary to carry out subsections B and C, including the Director of National Intelligence, the Under Secretary of Defence for Intelligence and Security, and the Director of the Unidentified Aerospace Undersea Phenomena Joint Programme Office, shall fully cooperate with the Comptroller General and provide to the Comptroller General such information as the Comptroller General determines necessary to carry out such subsections. So again, just basically making sure that everybody who's in a position to know and contribute to what this Comptroller General is going to put together, making sure that they all cooperate. And then lastly, access to records of the National Archives and Records Administration. The archivist of the United States shall make available to the Comptroller General such information maintained by the National Archives and Records Administration, including classified information, as the Comptroller General considers necessary to carry out subsections B and C. So again, we're talking here about being able to access the classified information within the National Archives as the Comptroller General considers necessary. So this Comptroller General is going to be a very significant individual um, regarding um, that, that particular report and, and what comes out in that. Now, bearing in mind, it's going to be some time before we get anything uh, from this individual here um, but it will be worth keeping an eye on whether or not it ends up being um, the, the gentleman I mentioned earlier um, Gene Dodaro uh, or whether it becomes his successor because extremely important um, you know role that that person is going to play now then, um, I think that's it. After that, it goes on to talk about uh, something completely different to do with the Office of Global Competition Analysis. So that is the entire read-through. This is definitely going to have to be two parts because I've just looked and we've just gone over two hours in the sauna. So um, there we go. I do hope that you appreciate what I, uh, what I sacrificed for my art. But um, in summary, what I would say about this then is that it is an absolutely huge development and it really contains some very interesting seeds which will grow you know to sort of bear fruits as the years progress and you know it's, it's really worth considering that this isn't the you know it, it's not over until the, the fat lady sings you know as the old saying goes um you know and until this is actually fully enacted and signed into law and, and becomes you know operational that's when we'll start to actually see how things progress i think it is important to consider the way that things have actually happened and turned out in recent history regarding these types of things so last year the ndaa included provisions for the request of the formation of a central ufo office with the proposed name of astro which i alluded to earlier uh, which was included as part of an amendment spearheaded by senator gillibrand 
Now, what actually unfolded in the end, or is still unfolding, is quite a good example of how these things can actually shake out in reality. So what happened was the DOD basically got wind of the fact that this amendment was about to come into fruition and preempted it uh, by creating its own office to deal with things relating to UAP. Now, obviously, the problem there is the actual departments that have been accused of obfuscating information for decades about this topic set up their own office before the actual office mandated by the Gillibrand Amendment even had a chance, really, to get off the ground. Um, it was a preemptive strike. And then the claim was made that there is only one office, it's the AOIMSG, and the AOIMSG is perfectly capable of fulfilling these requirements that were signed into law as part of the NDAA. Then there was a congressional hearing not long ago before a subcommittee of the House Intelligence Committee and was, you know, one of the main things that, that was supposed to have been discussed in that hearing was the progress of the AOMSG and how they were going to get how they were getting on in terms of setting up and where they were up to what they intend to do going forward and the thing is that actually many of the members of that subcommittee were not willing to accept the compromises in terms of you know only looking at this from 2004 onwards and basically not not they weren't willing the members of our subcommittee to accept that some of these huge historic events involving UAP were being glossed over. Now, I've heard some people talking about how, you know, it was, you know, the hearing was a shambles and all the people asking questions allowed themselves to be, uh, you know, um, sort of just deceived and whatnot. I don't think it was as clear cut as that. I mean, I think it was overall there was definitely an agenda there and there were some real cartoonish, ridiculous moments. But there were some individuals who were, who were very, very forthcoming with particularly pointed questions about really significant things. James Gallagher, for example, I, I don't understand how people can say that there were no good questions asked when James Gallagher pointed out things like Malmstrom Air Force Base, you know, a case where UAP were reported over a military base in charge of nuclear missiles and actually shut down all of the missiles and, um, you know, also crash retrieval programs, uh, alleged crash retrieval programs involving the recovery of crashed UAP or UFOs and debris from that and potentially more depending on how much you believe about the extent of what has been recovered and uh, also very importantly the Wilson document which is an alleged document referring to crash retrieval programs um, you know by uh, essentially very high level uh, individuals who claim to have tried to get access to these programs and were unable to but I've already been into a lot of this in a lot of detail recently, so you probably heard me go on about that a lot already, but I just thought it was worth uh, fleshing out a little bit. But if not, just Google the Wilson documents and you'll be able to find out a lot more about them and, and read them in full, etc. But But what I'm saying here is Congress, or at least certain members of those subcommittees, didn't want to accept what was being given to them on a plate in terms of you know, a reluctant admission that, yeah, right, there are some UFO incidents that can't be explained, but that's only recently and it's only since 2004. You know, they didn't want to accept that line and they demanded explanations and thorough investigations into some sort of, um, you know, some of these very significant cases which have happened over the previous decades going all the way back to the 40s. And quite rightly so, I think, because I believe there is a strong public interest in this topic and that, 
you know, these are some of the most significant historical cases that the public are aware of and the public has interest in. And despite what, you know, certain debunkers and naysayers might say, there is a huge amount of public interest in this topic. And what Congress, you know, uh, did, uh, uh, or certain members of, of Congress there did in that hearing, and what certain, you know, Senate officials uh, are doing uh, here, and, and what's been done in this Intelligence Authorization Act is to basically force these various different taxpayer-funded organisations within the government, within the military, within the intelligence community to cooperate with the will of the public to release information uh, revealed, uh, you know, reveal that information that is that is held within these secretive departments and disclose information on UFOs and UAP as is appropriate, obviously, depending on the nature of that information. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that you know, when things are put forward into legislation like this, though, it, it's not necessarily a guarantee of exactly how things are going to play out. And we can see this from that office that was requested to be created by the Gillibrand Amendment. You know, there are people that will try and wriggle out of the obligations, as they tried to do with the AOIMSG. If you consider the fact that there are at least some things which are known by certain secretive departments within the government, the intelligence community, etc., about UAP, and the public are not aware of these things, there will be certain people within, you know, Congress who are trying to act out the will of the people in terms of getting more transparency on these issues that have a lot of public interest around them. But very importantly, there will be people on the inside who are having the opposite struggle where they're trying to reduce the amount of this information that has that goes out to the public and they're going to want to continue with the obfuscation and not allow the information that is known to get out to the public which i believe is what we see you know here with the attempts to avoid filling the obligations and requirements of the Gillibrand amendment and i feel like we have to see how this one turns out now in terms of the intelligence authorization authorization act that i've just been reading through to see if there's any attempts to get around the wording of this new um you know intelligence authorization act i also think it's worth bearing in mind that there are some pretty strong arguments as to why you know some parts of you know this information should not get out to the public and um, you know some parts of uh, this information it sounded a bit like i said disinformation there but some parts of this info you know should maybe shouldn't get to the public you know now that's not really what i want to hear because obviously i'm an advocate for transparency on this issue and so on um because i believe it's in the public's right and the public's interest to be able to know more about this but having said that if there is some kind of secret information known about maybe a free energy source for example which is something that's been widely discussed you know and speculated on that that might be something that is known Perhaps they've been able to reverse engineer some free energy source. You know, maybe whatever it is that's behind the phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon that's being observed all over the world, maybe there is something that, you know, the, the US government or some, you know, secretive agency, a group within the government or the intelligence service or whatever, um, perhaps in collaboration with private industry, maybe they've been able to figure out at least, you know, some progress towards a free energy system of some type. And if that is the case, you would be very cautious about 
revealing any of that information that could lead to the uh, the the end goal of perhaps an adversary creating or recreating that technology. Uh, you know, you don't want free energy systems, for example, getting into the hands of Putin or North Korea or some terrorist organization. That that's quite reasonable uh, as an explanation to maintain secrecy. And the other reason, I suppose, that they might want to keep some of this secret is that. You know, they're in a potentially hundreds or even thousands of people legally implicated in the continuation of the obfuscation, you know, which has been going on for decades. In some cases, you know, ruined careers, you know, people who've been perhaps thrown in prison for the things that they've done um, to, to, you know, people that could be prosecuted and thrown in prison for the things that they've done to maintain this secrecy over the decades. And, you know, you can understand why there'd be a lot of people on the inside with a vested interest in keeping the obfuscation going. And then also, obviously, there's the consideration of what it would mean for the human race if there are secrets about non-human visitors to this planet that is, you know, the result of, you know, the, the consideration that they might just actually need a bit more time to figure out how best to you know, present this to the public, depending on how far down various different lines of thought you go, there may be already efforts, you know, underway to gradually reveal this information to the public. But that, I think, is a story for another day. Another little point that I wanted to quickly mention is, um, well, a couple of points, actually. First of all, uh, there's a fantastic article by Chris Sharp in uh, Liberation Times, an organization, a news website, if you like, that uh, I've recommended over and again on, on the show. Absolutely brilliant uh, journalism by Chris. Always a bit ahead of the curve is Chris. And uh, obviously, I've had him on the show a couple of times and uh, hopefully we'll be arranging something again soon. And um, the article is on liberationtimes.com and it's entitled Revisiting uh, 1947, the inside story on new congressional language which could reshape history as concerns persist over continued involvement of Lou Elizondo's former office. And it's a, a really interesting article that kind of examines a lot of the language used in the NDAA and also the, um, the Intelligence Authorization Act that I've just uh, read through. And uh, it describes it in Chris's article as, quote, the Senate's proposed language for the Intelligence Authorization Act 2023 arrived. And it is this act which may be remembered by generations to come if finalized in its current or an improved form, unquote. And um, I think that's exactly right. And it, and it also refers to um, the fact that how historic this actually may be because we're talking some of the things that I've just been through there, if that does actually come into fruition, and that is an if, remember, and that, as I've said, you know, with some of these things recently in, in the not-so-distant past, uh, there has been attempts to wriggle out of these obligations, so we'll see how it all plays out. But if, if all of this does go through, hugely significant. And it talks about something very interesting as well um, with a source from the DOD, and this particular source um, provided a quote which was quite interesting. Quote, laws are not written in a vacuum. Behind closed doors, lawmakers have met with current and former government insiders who have provided multi-source and verifiable information that has shaped the language we're seeing today. The wording is very specific. And many who are aware of the history of this subject will immediately understand why January the 1st, 1947, 
is the date to which the Comptroller General must use as day one of their compiled intelligence review and report that is due to Congress, unquote. Now, that is the Comptroller General um, uh, intelligence review and report that I was talking about that's mentioned right at the end of that big breakdown that we just did. And the thing about this is, January the 1st, 1947. Now, I've been speaking with a few confidants, if you will, about uh, about the significance of that date. And it's very, very interesting. There's a few different lines of thought that are worth considering with this. First is, 1947 is the year that Roswell took place. So you could argue that 1947 was chosen as the start date for the Comptroller uh, General in, you know, report and review. Um, you could argue that that was purely just, it was the beginning of the year that Roswell actually took place. But also, very interestingly, and this is going back to a cryptic hint that I dropped right earlier on some some way back there uh, some time ago, which was about the Department of Energy. If you remember, I said I'd come back to that later. Now, as I said, one explanation is that Roswell uh, could be the reason that that date is significant, purely for the fact that uh, Roswell took place in 1947 on uh, July, uh, in July, essentially, right? If Roswell took place in July... Surely you would just start your report from beginning of July, perhaps beginning of June, maybe even May, to be on the safe side. But why the 1st of January? Now, obviously, one way to look at that is purely that the 1st of January is the beginning of that year, so it's just a round date, you know, fair enough. But the specific quote from this DOD source says, the wording is very specific, and blah, 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 Many who are aware of the history of this subject will immediately understand why January the 1st, 1947 is the date to which the Comptroller General must use as day one. Now, what one thing I've been discussing with uh, behind the scenes with some, some uh, confidants is that the specific date, January the 1st, 1947, was the date that the... Atomic Energy Commission, which later went on to become the Department of Energy. So this is what I was talking about when I'd come back to the Department of Energy. The Atomic Energy Commission was actually started prior to 1947. But on August the 1st, 1946, President Harry Truman signed the McMahon Atomic Energy Act, which basically transferred the control of atomic energy from military to civilian hands. Bearing in mind this is just after the end of the Second World War, and at this point in time now, the Atomic Energy Commission was transferred from this, the military control to civilian hands. And very, very importantly here is the date that that became effective was January the 1st, 1947. And this this shift in control gave the members of the Atomic Energy Commission complete control of the plants, laboratories, equipment, and also a couple of things worth bearing in mind is how that relates to UAP. Back then, there was a lot of speculation that these observed craft that were being witnessed potentially had some kind of nuclear atomic um, energy system controlling them. So it would sort of make sense that if you were going to create 
um, you know, perhaps as a result of crash retrieval incidents observed, you know, crash uh, incidents happening and, and you, you would then want to create some kind of reverse engineering program to basically look into uh, trying trying to recreate these craft bearing in mind that one of the prevailing theories at the time was that they potentially used some kind of atomic nuclear propulsion system it would seem like a fairly logical home when i say home i mean the home of a potential crash retrieval program a reverse engineering program the logical thing at the time the most advanced technology in terms of energy creation was atomic you know as i suppose it still is really but back then there was a lot of discussion about these anomalous craft with incredible capabilities the sort of logical jump is that they may have been using some kind of atomic technology so when you bear in mind that just for that reason alone if if any kind of secretive programs were to exist to work on um reverse engineering of ufos you know trying to recreate the propulsion system that would the atomic energy commission is not a bad place to go in the first place and bearing in mind that on the 1st of, of january 1947 it was signed over to civilian control perhaps there would be less oversight and more options to be able to maintain secrecy within the department of energy and obviously certain things changed over the decades but many people have speculated that the logical home for these top secret waived programs that are outside of the normal oversight structures would be the department of energy so the atomic energy commission i think i already said this a moment ago but just to reiterate the atomic energy commission eventually down the line became the department of energy so we're talking about an organization that is essentially um one and the same there so very interesting little kind of food for thought just to end on and now i'm coming up to the two and a half hour uh you know point of this recording it's unbearably hot in this room so i think we're going to leave it there for now um, but i would definitely recommend you check out the entire document if, if you've enjoyed uh, listening through to this it's worth having a read through yourself as well maybe there's bits i missed maybe you interpret sections slightly differently um which is fine and always get in touch with me let me know what you think it'd be interesting to hear what you reckon about this uh this pretty huge development um and uh, don't forget if you've enjoyed what i've done here and you like listening to the podcast and you want to support to can help me to continue to keep all of this going and um, the i have a patreon so it's patreon.com forward slash ufo thinker and you can support the podcast there for as little as a couple of pounds a couple of dollars whatever your local currency is a month it's just set up as a regular donation each month uh, to help me to keep everything running and uh, i really re- appreciate the support and you get early access to episodes occasionally i do exclusive episodes that are only available to patreon supporters as well and so do feel free to jump on there and support the podcast if you're able to do so i hope you found this interesting personally think this is an absolutely mind-blowing development and it's pretty much if i was going to write down a wish list of exactly how i would tackle looking into this topic um this is pretty much the list I would have drawn up and it would have took me some time to do it because it's a long list. So I hope you've enjoyed listening and uh, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on a few of the things that are mentioned there um, going forward. And it's going to be... The important thing to remember is that these are seeds that are being planted now, which we won't see the results from for several years. But these are some very promising looking seeds. 
So hope you've enjoyed listening to this anyway. Hope you found it interesting. So until next time, take it easy, stay curious, and I'll catch you in the next episode, hopefully when it's a bit cooler. See you next time. UFO Fever Podcast.